pulling from the second chapter in Galatians, uh, the focus of my sermon this morning concerns the greatest insidious subtle heresy of the church today, or at least one of them, the greatest. It's a heresy that plagued the church in the first century and a subtle heresy that continues to plague the church today. And the great subtle heresy comes as a result of combining good works with faith in Jesus as a means of getting right with God. Or to put it another way, the great subtle heresy concerns the result of combining human merit with what Jesus accomplished on the cross as a means of obtaining our salvation. This was a huge, supremely critical issue for the Apostle Paul, as it should be for you and me and all Christians. As it concerns this matter, we should not be like the man who, when asked to explain the difference between ignorance and apathy, said, I don't know and I don't care. We should care. We should care enough to recognize the human predilection uh, to adding human merit to what Jesus accomplished. We need to recognize it, call it by what it is, heresy, and stamp it out of our heart of hearts once and for all. Because otherwise we will have a flawed understanding of the Christian gospel and deprive ourselves, ultimately, of true Christian peace and joy. So just briefly, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the heresy and then the objections that St. Paul faced as he preached against it, the very same objections that we hear in the church today. First, what did the earliest Christians actually believe about what Jesus accomplished on the cross? Well, probably no professed Christian in the early church, with any sense of all, thought that Jesus death on the cross accomplished nothing, but human nature has this inherent need to claim at least a little bit of credit for getting right with God, a little bit of credit for being loved by God. It's kind of like when, not long ago, I asked my wife why she loved me, and she thought, and she thought, and she thought, and I'm saying, come on, name something. And she finally said, I don't know. I just do. Now, my feelings were hurt at first, but you see, those were really the most wonderful words that I could possibly have ever heard. Because anything that she could have named would have been vulnerable to loss and depreciation. And the point that I'm making is that man has this inherent need to have some merit for the love we receive, for the salvation we receive. Most people just naturally think, that when it comes to our salvation, it's sure faith, but it's a little bit of works. And at least for me, the most meaningful stained glass in this entire church is the one that's at the top there, the center there, where Jesus just said just before he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And it's like we would almost rather him have said, it's 90% done. Now the rest is over to you and, and just do it and you'll be just fine. We all quite naturally gravitate, always have, towards believing this. And Paul saw that it led to a flawed understanding of the gospel, polluted gospel, that ultimately offers no enduring hope 
for a sin-sick, struggling soul. And Paul was determined to stamp it out like a squashed wick. Listen, if salvation came by faith and a little bit of merit, then as my man Spurgeon said, it it would silence the hallelujahs of heaven. Saints in heaven gathered around the throne. What is the meaning then of your song? Verse 16 in our reading puts it in a nutshell. We ourselves know that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, period. So it's just as Martin Luther said, Therefore, a monk shall not be justified by his discipline, a nun by her chastity, a citizen by his uprightness, a prince by his generosity. And we can enlarge on that by saying, You and I will not be justified by our kindness, how nice we are, or how giving we are, because we can't be nice enough, kind enough, or giving enough. And if we have to be justified by those kinds of things, then we are in a hell of a mess. And that's a theological statement. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's why we call it gospel. Good news. And Paul met fierce objections as he fought to preserve the pure gospel. It's the same objections we meet today. But you see, the religious world has always supposed that we must have some motive for keeping the commandments. It's not surprising that that Paul met resistance. People were saying to him, if we don't insist on good works as a condition of salvation, then aren't we making Jesus himself an encourager of sin? Verse 17, if being justified justified by Christ alone, aren't we making Christ an agent of sin? Well, it's a fair question. It says that if God justifies bad people, then isn't God encouraging sin? Why be good? Why bother to be a better person? Sounds irresponsible. It may be a fair question, but it just doesn't work that way. For example, take this woman in today's gospel reading. I mean, why did this woman who had very loose morals, as Luke tells us, why did she shed tears of joy? And wet Jesus' feet with his tears. And why does she anoint his feet, which is a first century action to show great uh, love and affection? Why? Jesus said so, said himself. He said, because she's been given for forgiven so much. And then Jesus said, but he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, the more merit you think you bring to the equation, then the less love that you will have to give in response. As I said, like a broken record, I believe the most transforming power on earth is being loved when you didn't deserve it at all. And here you go again from one of my favorite 19th century sermons. I preached morality till I made all the people in my parish immoral. I kept urging them to keep God's law until I made them break it. But when I turned around and began to preach the gospel, the dumb began to sing and the lame began to jump. Martin Luther is just great on this particular issue. He said, circa 1535, there we go. He said, all the objectors do is to scream that good works ought to be done and that the law ought to be observed. All right, we know that. Luther adds an exclamation point. 
We know that, but because these are different topics, we will not permit them to be confused. In due time, we'll discuss the teaching of the law and that good works ought to be done. But since we are now dealing with the subject of the gospel, we reject works altogether on which our opponents insist so tenaciously that they ascribe justification to them, which is to take Christ's glory away from him and assign them to good works instead. In other words, good Lord, deliver us from any doctrine that would mix works with faith with what Jesus accomplished on the cross as a means to our salvation, because that would be to take the royal crown from Jesus' head and go make a copy for a little crown for our own. The man told me just the other day, he said, you know, my aunt, I know she's in heaven because she was the most wonderful, kindest person you ever met, Frank. And I said to myself, well, that's a monstrous, horrible blasphemy if I've ever heard one. <clears throat> I didn't say that to him out loud, but I did say as lovingly as I could, well, we can know that your aunt is in heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. The subtle distinction between law and grace was a huge, huge deal for Paul. And he was incensed that the church would get it right. And you and I need to get it right, too. We all know. That a Christian is not someone who has no sin or feels no sin. He or she is someone to whom, because of faith, their sin is not held against them. So Topolady's old song gets it right. In my hand, no price I bring. Not even a little bit. Not a nothing. Zero price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And it is only as each of us makes that our own discovery that we will grow in Christian peace and love. Brothers and sisters, in six words, Jesus summed up the entire gospel. He said to St. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. He didn't say, my grace is just about all you need. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And if that's not music in a sinner's ears, then saints in heaven gathered around the throne. What is the meaning of your song? May God draw elected hearts and now give doubting souls courage to believe this gospel for Jesus' sake. Amen.